Chapter 27 of The Countess of Rodelstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rodelstadt by George Sand. Translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 27 Consuelo, having no further reason, after the benevolent and paternal language of the Invisibles, to be seriously anxious respecting the Chevalier, and thinking that Matthias did not see very clearly in the matter, experienced a great relief of mind on leaving that mysterious conventicle. All that had been said to her floated in her imagination like rays behind a cloud, and anxiety and the effort of her will no longer sustaining her. She soon felt an insurmountable fatigue in walking. Hunger made itself felt quite cruelly. The gummed hood stifled her. She stopped several times, was obliged to accept the arms of her guides in order to continue her advance, and on reaching her chamber she fainted away. A few moments afterward she felt restored by a smelling bottle, which was presented to her and by the fresh air which circulated in the apartment. Then she remarked that the men who had brought her back hurriedly departed, while Matthias hastened to serve up a very excellent supper, and the little mass doctor who had thrown her into a lethargy in order to bring her to that residence, was feeling her pulse and bestowing his attention upon her. She easily recognized him by his wig and his voice, which he had heard somewhere, but was not able to say under what circumstances. Dear doctor, said she, smiling, I believe the best prescription will be to let me sup very quickly. I have no other trouble than hunger, but I beseech you to spare me this time the coffee which you prepare so well. I believe I should no longer have strength to bear it. The coffee prepared by me, replied the doctor, is a very valuable comative. But be tranquil, Madam Countess. My prescription has nothing similar. Will you now trust to me and let me sup with you? The will of His Highness is that I shall not leave you until you are completely restored. And I think that, in half an hour, the repast will have completely driven away this weakness. If such be His Highness's good pleasure and your own, Sir Doctor, it will also be mine to have the honor of your company at supper, said Consuelo, while Matthias rolled her armchair to the table. It will not be useless to you, returned the doctor, beginning to demolish a superb pheasant pie and to carve the birds with the dexterity of a consummate practitioner. Without me, you would allow yourself to be carried away by the unconquerable veracity experienced after a long fast and you might make yourself ill. I, who do not fear such an inconvenience, will be careful to counter morsels to you by putting double upon my own plate. The voice of this gastronomic doctor attracted Consuelo's attention in spite of herself, but her surprise was great when, abruptly taking off his mask, he placed it on the table, saying, the devil take this nonsense, which prevents my breathing and tasting what I eat. Consuelo shuddered on recognizing in this bon vivant physician 
him whom she had seen at her husband's deathbed, Dr. Supperville, first physician to the Margravine of Bereath. She had afterwards seen him at a distance at Berlin, without having the courage to look at or speak to him. At this moment, the contrast of his gluttonous appetite with the emotion and dejection she experienced recalled to her the dryness of his ideas and conversation in the midst of the anguish and sorrow of the Rudelstadt family, and she had a difficulty in concealing from him the disagreeable impression he occasioned her. But Supperville, absorbed by the flavor of the pheasant, appeared to pay no attention to her trouble. Matthias completed the ridiculousness of the situation in which the doctor had placed himself by an artless exclamation. That circumspect servant had waited upon him five minutes without perceiving that his face was uncovered, and it was only when he took the mask for the covering of the pâté and was about to place it methodically over the open breach that he cried out with terror, Mercy, sir doctor, you have let your face fall upon the table. The devil take that face of cloth, say I. I can never accustom myself to eat with it. Put it in a corner. You will give it back to me when I go out. As you please, sir doctor, said Matthias, with an air of consternation. I wash my hands of the matter. But your lordship is not ignorant that I am obliged every evening to give an exact account of all that is done and said here, though I might say that your face was unfastened by mistake. I cannot deny that madam has seen what was under it. Very well, my honest man. You will make your report, said the doctor, without being disconcerted. And you will remark, Mr. Mateus, observed Consuelo, that I in no way incited the doctor to this disobedience, and that it is not my fault if I recognized him. Be perfectly tranquil, madam, returned Supperville, with his mouth full. The prince is not so much of a devil as he is black, and I do not fear him. I shall tell him that since he authorized me to sup with you, he authorized me by that very act to free myself from every obstacle to mastication and declutition. Besides, I had the honor to be too well known by you for the sound of my voice not to have betrayed me already. It is therefore a vain formality which I lay aside, and the prince will himself make light of it first of all. No matter, sir, doctor, said Matthias, much shocked. I would rather you should play that joke than I. The doctor shrugged his shoulders, laughed at the timid Matthias, ate enormously, and drank in proportion, after which, Matthias having retired to change the service, he drew his chair somewhat nearer to Consuelo, lowered his voice, and spoke thus. Dear Signora, I am not so much of a gourmand as I appear. Supperville, having eaten quite enough, could say this at his ease. And my object in coming to sup with you was to give you information respecting important matters which particularly interest you. From whom, and in whose name do you wish to reveal those things to me, sir, said Consuelo, who remembered the promise she had just made to the Invisibles? In my own full right, and by my own free will, replied Supperville. Do not be anxious, therefore. I am no spy, 
and I speak with open heart, not caring much if my words are repeated. Consuela thought for a moment that her duty was absolutely to close the doctor's mouth in order not to render herself an accomplice of his treachery. But she also thought that a man so devoted to the invisibles as to undertake to half-poison people in order to bring them while unconscious to that chateau could not act as he did without being secretly authorized. This is a snare that is laid for me, thought she. This is the commencement of a series of trials. Let me be attentive and observe the attack. It is necessary, madam, continued the doctor, that I should tell you where and in whose house you are. Here we are, said Consuela to herself, and she hastened to reply. Many thanks, sir, doctor. I have not asked you, and I wish not to know. Ta-ta-ta, resumed Supperville. We have fallen into the romantic train to which the prince delights to lead all his friends. But don't believe seriously in these idle stories. The least that could happen to you would be to become crazy and to swell his retinue of deranged and visionary persons. I have no intention on my part to fail in the promise I have given him not to tell you his name or that of the place in which you are. It is that, moreover, which should affect you least, for it would only be a satisfaction to your curiosity, and it is not that disease which I wish to treat in you. It is an excess of confidence on the contrary. You may therefore learn, without disobeying him and without the risk of displeasing him, I am interested not to betray you that you are here in the house of the best and the most absurd of old men. A man of wit, a philosopher, a soul courageous and tender even to heroism, even to madness. A dreamer who treats the ideal as reality and life as a romance. A savant who, in consequence of reading the writings of sages and searching for the quintessence of ideas, has come, like Don Quixote, after reading all his books of chivalry, to take inns for chateaus, galley slaves for innocent victims, and windmills for monsters. In fine, a saint, if you consider only the beauty of his intentions. A fool, if you weigh their result. He has imagined, among other things, a network of permanent and universal conspiracy, to hamper and paralyze the action of the wicked in the world. First, to oppose and thwart the tyranny of government. Second, to reform the immorality or the barbarity of the laws which govern society. Third, to pour into the hearts of all men of courage and devotedness the enthusiasm of his propaganda and the zeal of his doctrines. Nothing more than that, eh? and he thinks he shall succeed. Still, if he were seconded by some sincere and reasonable men, the little good he succeeds in doing might bear its fruit. But, unfortunately, he is surrounded by a clique of intriguers and audacious impostors who pretend to share his faith and aid his projects, and who make use of his credit to get possession of good places in all the courts of Europe not without dexterously conveying to their own pockets the greater part of the money destined for good works. 
that is the man, and such are his confidants. It is for you to judge in what hands you are, and if this generous protection, which has so happily rescued you from the claws of little Fritz, does not risk letting you fall, still worse in attempting to raise you to the clouds. Now you are warned. Distrust fine promises, beautiful discourses, scenes of tragedy, sleight-of-hand tricks by Cagliostro, St. Germain, and company. Are these two last personages here now, asked Consuelo, rather troubled and wavering between the danger of being deceived by the doctor and the probability of his assertions? I don't know, replied he. Everything passes mysteriously. There are two chateaus, one visible and palpable, to which you see come people of the world who imagine nothing, in which fets are given, in which is displayed all the ceremony of a princely, frivolous, and inoffensive existence. That chateau covers and conceals the other, which is a little subterranean world quite skillfully masked. In the invisible chateau are elucubrated all the brown studies of his highness. Innovators, reformers, inventors, sorcerers, prophets, alchemists, all architects of a new society, always ready, according to them, to swallow the old one tomorrow or the day after. Such are the mysterious guests who are received, lodged and consulted without the knowledge of anyone on the surface of the soil or at least without any profane person being able to explain the noises in the cellars, otherwise than by the presence of wandering ghosts and meddling spirits in the lowest stories of the building. Now conclude. The said characters may be a hundred leagues off, for they are great travelers by nature, or a hundred paces from us in good chambers with secret doors and double walls." They say that this old chateau formerly served as a rendezvous for the frank judges, and that afterwards, in consequence of certain hereditary traditions, the ancestors of our prince have always amused themselves by contriving terrible conspiracies, which have never, so far as I know, produced anything. That is an old custom of the country, and the most illustrious brains are not those least addicted to it. I am not initiated into the wonders of the invisible chateau. I pass some days here from time to time, when my sovereign, the Princess Sophia of Prussia, Margravine of Bereath, gives me permission to go and take the air out of her dominions. Now as I am prodigiously on weed at the delightful court of Bereath, at the bottom have an attachment for the prince of whom we are speaking, and am not disinclined to play a little trick sometimes to the great Frederick whom I detest. I render to the said prince some disinterested services by which I amuse myself very much. As I receive orders only from him, those services are always very innocent. That of assisting to rescue you from Spandau and to bring you here like a poor sleeping dove had nothing repugnant to me. I knew that you would be well-treated, and I thought you would have an opportunity to amuse yourself. But if, on the contrary, you are tormented here, if the charlatan counselors of his highness pretend to take possession of you and to make you serve the intrigues in the world, 
I fear nothing of the kind, replied Consuelo, more and more struck by the doctor's explanations. I shall know how to preserve myself from their suggestions if they wound my sense of rectitude and are revolting to my conscience. Are you very sure of that, Madam Countess? returned Supperville. Beware. Do not trust to it and do not boast. Very reasonable and very honest people have gone from here stamped and quite ready to do evil. All means are good to the intriguers who speculate upon the prince, and that dear prince is so easily dazzled that he has himself assisted in the perdition of some souls while thinking to save them. Know that these intriguers are very skillful, that they have secrets to terrify, to convince, to move, to intoxicate the senses and to strike the imagination. First, a persistence in tricks and a crowd of little incomprehensible methods, and then receipts, systems, enchantments at their service. They will send specters to you. They will make you fast to take away your clearness of mind. They will surround you with pleasant or frightful phantasmagoria. In fine, they will make you superstitious, crazy perhaps, as I had the honor of telling you, and then, and then, what can they expect from me? What am I in the world that they can desire to draw me into their nets? Aho, the Countess de Rudolstadt does not imagine. Not in the least, sir, doctor. Still, you must remember that Monsieur Cagliostro made you see the late Count Albert, your husband, living and acting. How do you know that, if you are not initiated into the secrets of the subterranean world of which you speak? You told it to the Princess Amelia of Prussia, who is rather a babbler, as are all curious persons. Do you not know, moreover, that she is very intimate with the specter of the Count of Rudolstadt? A certain Trismegistus, as I am told. Exactly. I have seen that Trismegistus, and it is a fact that it resembles the Count in a surprising manner at first sight. He can be made to resemble him still more by being dressed and wearing his hair as the Count was accustomed to do by making his face pallid and studying the gait and manners of the deceased. Do you understand now? Less than ever. What interest could they have in making this man pass for Count Albert? How simple and loyal you are. Count Albert is dead, leaving a great fortune which will fall to women in the hands of the canoness Wenceslawa into those of the little Baroness Amelia, Count Albert's cousin unless you claim your rights to a dowry or to a life estate. They will at first endeavor to decide you to this. It is true, cried Consuelo. You enlighten me as to the meaning of certain words. That is nothing. This life estate, very liable to be contested, at least in part, would not satisfy the appetite of the chevaliers d'industrie who wish to get possession of it. You have no child. You are without a husband. Well, Count Albert is not dead. He was in a lethargy. He was buried alive. The devil got him out. Monsieur de Cagliostro gave him a potion. Monsieur de Saint-Germain set him walking. In brief, at the end of one or two years, he reappears, 
relates his adventures, throws himself at your feet, consummates his marriage with you, starts for Giant's Castle, gets himself recognized by the old canoness and some old servants who do not see very clearly, calls an inquest if there is any opposition, and pays the witnesses. He even makes a journey to Vienna with his faithful wife to claim his rights from the empress. A little scandal does no harm in such matters. All the great ladies are interested in a handsome man, the victim of a fatal adventure and of the ignorance of a stupid physician. Prince Konitz, who does not hate cantatrices, protects you. Your cause triumphs. You return victorious to Riesenberg. Put your cousin Amelia out of doors. You are rich and powerful. You associate yourself with the Prince of Here and his charlatans to reform society and to change the face of the world. All that is very agreeable and costs no trouble but a little deceit by taking in the place of an illustrious husband a handsome adventurer, a man of wit and a great fortune-teller to boot. Do you understand now? Make your reflections. It was my duty as a physician, as a friend of the Rudelstadt family, and as a man of honor, to tell you all this. They had depended on me to testify in case of need to the identity of Trismegatus with Count Albert. But I who saw him die, not with the eyes of imagination, but with those of science, I who have very well remarked certain differences between the two men, and who know that the adventurer has been known at Berlin for a long time, shall not lend myself to such an imposture. Many thanks. I know that you will not lend yourself to it either, but they will put everything in play to persuade you that Count Albert has grown two inches taller and gained freshness and health in his coffin. I hear Matthias returning. He is a good animal who imagines nothing. I retire. I have said all. I leave the chateau in an hour, having nothing more to do here. After having thus spoken with a remarkable volubility, the doctor resumed his mask, profoundly saluted Consuelo, and retired, leaving her to finish her supper all alone if she pleased. She was by no means inclined to do so. Overpowered and cast down by all she had heard, she retired to her chamber and only found a little repose after having suffered long from the saddest perplexities and the most vague anguish of doubt and anxiety. End of chapter 27